Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries, and welcome. Thank you for joining me today. May God bless you richly through this reading and study in His Word. I pray that this will be a blessing to you, and today we're going to continue in our Beauty of Grace series as we are drawing near to the close of that. So I want us to look today at Lesson 70, The Church of Grace. Seeing and understanding more about the sweet communion of fellowship with God in relationship that we've learned about and cherishing that relationship with our carefulness and cooperation with the Holy Spirit to maintain God's honor through lives of integrity. Let's now look at the body of Christ together and our part in it as we consider the church of grace. I want us to begin today by looking at Matthew chapter 18, verse 13 through 18. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So Jesus first brings his intention for this new construct he is about to do to his disciples. He first of all asks them, who are you thinking that I am? Who do you say that I am? Do you believe in me as who I truly am? And Peter, impetuous many times, and a lot of times he gets it wrong, but this time he was dead right. He was right on track. And he said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the promised one from all of our prophets before that they foretold about. You are the coming one we've waited for, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends him for that. And then he says, your name is Peter, but on this rock, the rock of Revelation, not the rock of Peter. It's not Peter that built the church. And the church is not established on the foundation of Peter. The church is built upon the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's made very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for instance. But the rock is the rock of Revelation. All who will believe as Peter believed that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one of old, the Savior of the world, the Son of the living God. The foundation rock is Jesus. And on that rock, he promised he would build his church and that he would guard it and give it victory and the gates of Hades would not be able to prevail against it or to withstand against it. This word for that church that Jesus is building is called the ecclesia in the Greek. And it literally means the called out ones. Those who are called out. 
I have another message in the archives, and it's on the subset. And it's talking about how we are in the world, but not of the world. And in some ways, you can look at it similar to the Venn diagram, where you would have maybe two intersecting circles or a circle within another circle. And so the concept that Jesus is communicating here is, yes, we're in the bigger circle called the world, but we are not of the world. We're a subset of those within the world. We don't have the same goals of the world. We don't have the same love. We don't have the same affection. We are not about the same mindset or, or direction as where the world is going. But we right now are still living among the people of the world. So Jesus himself said in John chapter 17, you are in the world, but not of the world. So we're the called out ones. If we go all the way back to the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 12, we find out that the father of our faith, Abraham, was also called out. He was called out of his native country. He was called out from among those traditions and practices of evil. He was called out from that place where they worshipped many gods. And he began a relationship with the true and living God. And so he was called out from Ur of the Chaldees to go with God to another place, the place that God would have for him. The church is what Jesus comes along in the New Testament here and is saying he's building. But we need to realize it was hidden throughout in the Old Testament. Some people have said the church is not in the Old Testament. And that's not really true. It wasn't there in plain sense or in plain reading. But it was referred to and referenced in the Old Testament. For instance, Hosea chapter 1 verse 10 speaks of a people that were not his people that become his people. And Paul specifically here applies and shows the fulfillment of that to the church in Romans chapter 9, verse 26. Paul makes a definite correlation with quoting Hosea 1.10 when he speaks of this. There's another place in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 56. If you read verse 3 through 8, it speaks of strangers, those who were strangers and yet have joined themselves to the Lord. Paul writes about something very similar in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 through 19, where he's talking about how we at one time were strangers alienated from God, but now we are no longer strangers. We've been brought in. We've been made new. So Paul speaks of this as a mystery. He calls it the mystery of the church. In the New Testament, and it's the Greek word mysterion. It's talking about something that it's not that it's a secret and it's a brand new thing that somebody just made up. What it means is that it's always been there, but it had not been seen or revealed clearly up until now. It's similar to pulling back a curtain. There may be something behind it. Let's say there's a window there. Let's say there's some thing out in the backyard that that, that curtain is, is hiding your view from over that window that you can't see until the curtain is pulled away. And when the curtain is pulled away, you can clearly see what was back there all along behind it. 
but had been hidden by the curtain. It's similar to that when we look at the church in the Old Testament. And so we come to the New Testament, we read places like in Romans chapter 9, verse 26, and Ephesians 2, where we see more of the connection of, yes, it was. It was hidden in the Old Testament, but now it's being revealed and we're understanding it. Even in the Old Testament type and shadow of the temple or the tabernacle, there is a picture of the church. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we find more of how that connects. Let's look at that now. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 15, it says this, And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So here it's referencing the church. Now we are the temple of God, our own bodies, because Jesus is living inside of us. The Holy Spirit is living inside of us. Our bodies are now the temple of God. God's word is living in us and prospering. We are the called out ones the ecclesia, the church that God has built. It's patterned even in the Old Testament from the deliverance from Egypt, for instance. They were called out. They were called out of Egypt. They were brought out of Egypt by the strong and mighty arm of deliverance from the hand of the Lord. And they were brought out of Egypt to bring them into a relationship with the Lord when the children of Israel came to the holy mountain, Mount Sinai or Horeb, and were led there by Moses and given the Mosaic covenant at that time. So Christians and Jewish believers in Messiah, we are now one in Messiah, whether we're Jew or Gentile. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been called out of sin, just like the children of Israel were called out of Egypt. We've been called out of sin and we've been brought into a relationship with God. At Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the children of Israel through Moses received the law. In our relationship, we are part of the new covenant that God promised in Jeremiah chapter 31 and in the book of Hebrews in chapter 8 and other places. It speaks about this new covenant. This new covenant actually fulfills and fills to the full the Abrahamic covenant so it is really the renewal and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Because even in the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 22 and so on, God had promised Abraham that in his seed, all of the families of the earth would be blessed. So even Abraham, the father of our faith in Jesus Christ, the father of faith, he was saved by faith. We know that in the New Testament by reading Romans, by reading Galatians, by reading Hebrews and other places. It tells us clearly 
It has always been about faith and believing God. It's always been about that. It's never been about works. Let's look at Galatians chapter 3. And I'd like to read this whole chapter with us today. But I want to read it and then comment as we go through because this is a very powerful logic argument that Paul uses. Paul was a trained and skilled communicator. Paul had studied well. He had studied under a very leading rabbi, Gamaliel. And so Paul understood logic. I remember taking a class in college on logic, and it was just an introductory class. But I do remember a few things from that class. I've never forgotten them. They made an impact on me. And I began to understand that logic is simply the formation and the proving of certain premises that cause you to arrive at a good, solid, truthful conclusion. If any of the premises are wrong or are false, then the conclusion cannot be justified. It is a fallacious conclusion. But if all the premises are correct, they will lead you to the correct, solid, and truthful conclusion that you should arrive at. And so you should understand something in that way. Paul uses logic in many places in the New Testament. But one that has always stood out to me is Galatians chapter 3. Let's look at this in light of what we're talking about here today. Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So in this section, I want to stop right here for a moment. What Paul is dealing with in the book of Galatians is the fact that people that have come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have now been infiltrated and contaminated to some degree by these Judaizers. These are people in that day that were trying to tell them well, you know, Jesus is okay, but you've got to still keep the law. You still need to get circumcised. You still need to do Moses' law. You still need to do this and that. It's Jesus plus some work. It's Jesus plus this law. It's Jesus plus these rules. And so Paul is addressing this in the entire book of Galatians. And he's trying to prove to them that Abraham was saved by faith, and it's always been about faith, and there is no other way. It's faith in God's promised seed of Abraham that was going to come. 
So he is establishing the logical argument here to prove that point. And he starts with premise A, we'll call it. And it's found here in verse 7 through 9. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are true sons of Abraham. Paul alludes to this in the book of Romans as well. And so he's saying the same thing in this place as well. He's just using this. This is premise A. Know that only those who are of faith are the sons of Abraham. And then he goes on and he says, because God told him, your seed, those who believe as you believe, will be justified. Even in even the Gentiles, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So here in verses 7 through 9, we have Paul's first premise that is establishing this argument. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. And everyone else who will believe God the way Abraham did, those are the true sons of Abraham, be they Jew or Gentile. Then he goes on. Let's talk about premise B. Let's begin the reading again in verse 10 and forward. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith, which came from another one of their minor prophets in the Hebrew scriptures. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. And this I say that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So here we have premise B, and it's found in this section in verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. So now we get to find out who the promises were made concerning. They're concerning Christ, the Messiah, the one that was promised from of old. Then when we continue on in verse 19 and forward, he's going to explain why Christ is better than the law and what was the purpose of the law to begin with. Because these people have been trying to pull them back under the bondage of the law and say, it's okay to believe in Jesus as long as you add this to it, as long as you're also circumcised. So he's going to explain the purpose of the law then, so that they don't think it was no good and useless. Verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, 
till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. This is the strongest Greek negative that Paul could have used. Absolutely, positively, no way, not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. What Paul is telling them here is there was a very holy, good purpose to the law. And it kept us during that time before the Messiah actually came. But now that Jesus has come, now that Yeshua, the Messiah, is here, we no longer need to be under this law. It was a tutor. It was even pointing us to Jesus. That was its purpose. John the Baptist comes on the scene. And what does he do? In John 1, 29, he points people to Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. The law was our schoolmaster. It was a tutor. It's interesting because the word Torah literally means to give direction to or to point to. Paul writes in another place in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. He says this, he, he teaches us that Christ is the end of the law. That doesn't mean he did away with the law in the sense of abolishing it or being contrary to it. It simply means he was the aim of it. He was the fulfillment of it. He was the goal of it. He was what it was pointing to. And now that he has come, there's a different relationship with God. We're no longer under the tutor. We've now come to Jesus Christ when we believe in him. The thought came to me, and I don't know a whole lot about football, but in football, the end is for you to make the goal for a touchdown. In that play, that's what you want to do. In that season, you want to make it to the goal, to the finish line, to the end zone, and make a touchdown in that game. So in a sense, Christ is the touchdown. He's the end zone. He's the highest fulfillment. He's the ultimate goal that it was all pointing to and all directing to to begin with. The sacrifices were all pointing to the once for all sacrifice of the sinless Son of God on the cross of Calvary. The priesthood was all a, a symbol and pointing to Jesus and his fulfillment as our high priest, there is so much symbolism, so much. Even the serpent on the pole, Jesus himself said that that was pointing to him, that he's the fulfillment of when Moses had to erect the serpent on the pole. So we need to understand the law had a beautiful purpose, but its purpose was to point us to Jesus because he was who it was all about. And he's the end of it. He was the goal. He's the ultimate fulfillment of it. So let's continue now, verse 26 through 29. For you are all sons of God 
through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So in verses 26 through 29, we have the conclusion. Paul has established this entire logical argument here, and he has proven that none of the premises are faulty. All of them are true and factual. Therefore, the conclusion is also true and factual and solid. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Because if we are Christ, we are Christ by faith through grace. If we are Christ, we have faith in Jesus. We have faith in the promised one that God gave as the seed of Abraham. Then we are sons of Abraham because Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Therefore, we are heirs according to the promise. It is not according to our works. We are people of faith in Jesus Christ, who was the seed of Abraham for the entire world. So the church consists of Jewish and Gentile believers in Messiah, in Yeshua Jesus. And we are one in Messiah. We are one in Christ Jesus, just like it says here in verse 28. We are followers of Jesus, disciples, trained and obeying him, living as he would live, being his representatives in the earth. The disciples came to understand that the church that Jesus was building is this body, this called out body. And they began to bring us more teaching on it in their epistles. Paul speaks about it all throughout his. And let's look at Peter's in 1 Peter chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So here Peter is also referencing 
Hosea chapter 1. He's also telling us that we are the called out ones. Verse 11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. So Peter here is talking about the church that Jesus said he was going to build. We are that spiritual house. Our bodies are that temple of God like Paul spoke of. And we are being built up together to offer spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And we do that, and there's a connection with those and the five basic offerings that even in the Old Testament, the Jews had to do. I've covered that in a series called Leviticus, Grace, and the Church. And you can find that in the archives. Jesus was our sin and guilt offering. He paid for that alone on the cross. But as the church, we can offer him the remaining sacrifices. Romans chapter 12, the burnt offering, our whole self-surrender as we yield to him and offer our bodies even. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14 through 16, covers the grain and meal offering and the peace offering, where we are sharing with one another, helping and fellowshipping with each other, and thanksgiving to God. These are the spiritual sacrifices we begin to offer to the Lord through a life of obedience and integrity. Paul uses the imagery of the body of Christ in Romans chapter 12, and he talks about just like our bodies have many different members, but each one has its own individual function and role. We have eyes, but we don't just have eyes. We also have a heart. We also have arms. We also have legs. We also have a liver. We also have a head. We also have jaws and teeth. We have many members, but each individual one has its own function and role. And every single one of them are important to the health of the entire body. Every single one is significant. Every single one is necessary. Each one has its own place, its own fit, and its own function and role. Ephesians chapter 2, let's look at that and see what else Paul speaks about in regard to this. In Ephesians chapter 2, I'd like to read verses 19 through 22. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So he's saying here that the whole body is joined together. It is fit together by the Lord for the purpose of building up the whole body, honoring God. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 16. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, 
that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So in other words, Paul is saying here, the whole body is joined together into one body, but there's still many different parts, each one having these individual functions and each one needing to do its share to cause the growth of the entire body. And it's very similar to that in our natural bodies. Those of us that suffer with different types of ailments or or problems physically, it's because something in the body doesn't work like it was supposed to, like it originally worked. Something has been diseased. Something has been harmed. And so Paul is using a similar imagery here that each person, each part needs to do its job. Each part needs to work together. Because we are joined together in the body of Christ into one. And so when we all do our part, growth and edification of the entire body can occur. In Colossians chapter 2, it speaks of how we are one in Messiah, both Jew and Gentile, when we are saved in Christ Jesus. Yet we each, as the New Testament teaches us, have our own individual gifts and talents that have been given by the Lord, by the Spirit of the living God. Every Christian has at least one. The Spirit of God decides and gives them to us. We've looked at that earlier when we talked about the charismata of grace, and there's more information about those in Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14. But in each one in the operation, it's interesting that love is in chapter 13, the love chapter, so to speak. And It's required that we have love in the operation of those gifts. That's how the body is joined together and serves one another and grows together in sound growth to full maturity in Jesus Christ is through the operation of love among us as each one is doing his or her part. The church is not a physical building or some physical structure. We might ride by and see a building that has a church sign on the outside, and it may say the church of so-and-so, the, the, you know, Bible church, or it may say the church of God, or it may say whatever. But the church is really the people of God. Those are the ones that are the church. That's the church that Jesus was building, that he has built because of the grace of God to all who believe in Jesus. Through this building of the church, Jesus has fit us together, joined us together. No one is an island. We're made for fellowship with one another and with the Lord. In 1 John chapter 1, he speaks of this, that we are made to be in fellowship with the Lord and with each other. The church of the Lord is destined and designed to shine for him and to be filled with people who love him and love one another in relationship, growing together healthily in Jesus Christ. 
until the day that we are all joined with him and we are with him forever. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again as we continue in these concluding episodes of our Beauty of Grace series. God bless you today. In Jesus' name, amen.